new year brings a new administration and a new approach to climate change. We'll take the temperature in Washington with a top Obama science advisor. And Arctic air spells trouble for some, unless you're making ice outdoors. Winter weather and the world's largest pond hockey tournament. Grab your carbon footprint and lace up those skates. We're skating toward another episode of Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Happy Inauguration Week, everybody. I'm Paul Hutner from Minnesota Public Radio. University of Minnesota climate and weather professor Dr. Mark Seeley is with us today as well. Hi, Mark. Hello, Paul. Pleasure to be with you today. Good to be here, too, and nice uh, to see some milder temperatures out there these days. Uh, January thaw, Mark, we're almost there. We're trying to get there. We're going to be on the edge of this one, it looks like. Uh, They're getting some very warm readings back in the Dakotas, where we've seen 50 and 60 degree readings in central and western South Dakota. But uh, the January thaw, it's legendary in the Midwest and New England, but it's also supported by real climate data, isn't it? It is. Even in the nation's icebox, Paul, uh, International Falls, Minnesota, up along the Canadian border, about once every other year they get a January thaw, so it's about a 50% historical probability. Down in southern Minnesota locations, in the Twin Cities area particularly, it's it's more like uh, 80 to 90% probability. The last time locally here in the Twin Cities we did not have a January thaw was 1994. So we're kind of pushing the envelope here this month, and I hope we do get one. And we're sitting at 27 degrees right now, so it looks iffy as if we'll make the thawing point today. Uh, another close call tomorrow, but if we don't, the Arctic air is coming back. It looks like we could not possibly see a January. That's right. Our year. chance is coming up here in the next 24 to 36 hours. Well, uh, speaking of temperatures, NOAA comes out this week with 2008 uh, being the eighth warmest year globally on record, according to preliminary data from NOAA's Climate uh, Climatic Data Center. It ties 2001 as the eighth warmest year on record. Combined global land and ocean surface temperatures. degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average of 57 degrees. Uh, Since 1880, the annual combined global land and ocean surface temperature has increased at a rate of 9 one-hundredths of a degree Fahrenheit per decade, but the rate has increased at closer to 3 tenths of a degree Fahrenheit over the past 30 years. So another top 10 warm year globally in 2008, Mark, but We're kind of off to a bit of a chilly start here, at least in the Midwest, for 2009. Yes, we are. Uh, But, of course, uh, you know, embedded in these background trends, we can have these uh, aberrations and go back to old-fashioned winter at any time. And uh, it appears that's what we're experiencing this winter. And one more thing that struck my interest this week, we'll call it Corn to the Rescue, an article uh, highlighting a study at the University of Bristol in the U.K. finding that the high albedo of waxy crops like corn and barley may cool the U.S. corn belt and Eurasia during the summer months. They estimate that increasing crop albedo by 20% could decrease regional summer temperatures by as much as 1 degree Celsius. Mark, that may be true, but we know in this part of the country in the Corn Belt, is there a trade-off there with higher summertime dew points, perhaps? Good point, Paul. There could very well be, because in the Midwest, particularly the agricultural Midwest, we have been seeing some steep rises in summer dew points. The water vapor content of the air 
appears to be higher and we're having more frequent spells of, of uh, high dew points, which, of course, retains that heat, doesn't allow us to cool off as much at, at, at night. So there is some offsetting, offsetting effect going on there. Well, this is the week with the inaugural of now President Obama, and it's filled the air with change. And those of us in the weather and climate business are watching and wondering how the Obama administration's approach to climate change and weather issues will change, too. Dr. Pei Yi Hong may have some unique insight into that question. She is the chief scientist in the EPA's Office of the Science Advisor, and we are fortunate to have her on Jetstreaming today. Pei Yi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Jetstreaming. Well, thank you for having me. Are you in uh, D.C. today? Yes, I am in D.C. office today. And uh, have you been, or your office, in contract with the Obama transition team at all, I'm wondering? And are, are there any new signs of any new marching orders yet when it comes to climate change in general? Um, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to uh, uh, interact with the uh, administration presidential transition team once and uh, from uh, the conversation and, and also the overall uh, interaction. It's uh, very exciting that, uh, you know, climate change uh, is one of the subject matter they um, are interested and concerned about. And also um, they um, are very interested in a integrated scientific approach and to make sure the science is really the backbone of what our agency does. Obviously, that is related to the climate change and the scientific integrity and the rule of law is very much based upon the science and technology. Uh, Pei Yi, Mark Seeley, uh, University of Minnesota here. One, one of the uh, features that I'm intrigued with is um, your background, um, you you uh, are an expert in marine and atmospheric chemistry, I understand, but also your professional background encompasses work at the USDA as well as NOAA. Is that, <laughs> is that right? Yes, I, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to serve at NOAA as well as USDA uh, prior to um, my uh, new position with EPA, and I started the EPA uh, in April 2008. So I've been here for nine months. Well, um, I have a question. Uh, you know, in years past, we haven't seen as well-coordinated efforts as I would like to see at least between, say, NOAA, EPA, Department of Energy, and USDA. And now with the uh, transition to the, the Obama administration and scientists with such diverse backgrounds as yourself, I guess I'm more hopeful that we, at least in climate change and the science of climate change, we might see a little better coordination among these agencies. Do you think that that's going to be in the mix for the new administration? Um, I would say that if we build upon the current uh, the climate change science program as well as the climate change uh, technology program, and certainly those two programs encompass multiple federal agencies, and uh, moving forward, um, I would say it doesn't matter whether the you know whether the name still remains, but a, a interaction between a CC. 
SP, which is a science program for climate change, and CCPP, which is technology program in climate change, will certainly also create a synergy to bring uh, multiple agencies together. And I myself, because I have served in multiple um, federal agency capacity, and it is my hope um, and that, you know, I, I can uh, – capitalize the working relationship I have developed and also um, and, and with the opportunity that they are cross-federal uh, agency uh, forum and capacity to enable the further collaboration between um, um, all relevant agency on climate change, whether that's a water issue, uh, air quality issue, green economy issue, um, or energy environmental issue. Say, following up on that, um, you know, when it comes to water and, mm -hmm. air, and air quality issues, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, will there be renewed effort to collaborate with our Canadian neighbors? Because it appears to me, particularly in terms of water quality and air quality, we need to have really close collaboration with our Canadian uh, neighbors in that regard. If I may give you uh, two examples of ongoing the U.S. and Canadian collaboration, perhaps we'll set certain encouragements, if you would, uh, for the expectation. I completely agree with you. Uh, the, air the air and water, they do not recognize the boundary. Uh, so um, but there is an ongoing collaboration between Canada and United States um, on water issue, and that is a built upon the global earth observing system of a system framework. And we're working on the watershed issue on Great Lake. And um, it, it is ongoing, and even though it's relatively new, i.e. about two, three years, but I can see this effort continues. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just got back from the American Meteorological Society annual meeting, and I met um, uh, our Canadian counterparts there and to talk about how to continue this uh, effort on water quality. The same thing with air quality, uh, you know, for example, mercury issue. It's a very, um, it's a very obvious, it's a non a boundary issue, and we are working with our Canadian colleagues on that matter. Uh, Peiyi, uh, there there are a lot of people still who who refuse to believe that our climate is changing, or perhaps that it's just part of a natural or solar cycle. <laughs> and, yeah, and, you know, what do you say to those people? I mean, from your perspective, what does the average American need to know about climate change? Um, that's a question I kind of ponder myself because being a scientist myself, um, often thinking about how do I articulate to something like, for example, to my grandmother or to my parents so they can understand. And um, I, I may not have all the answer, but uh, one thing I, I, I've tried to um, relate this climate change subject matter uh, to um, my parents, and, and that is um, extreme weather condition. Uh, what do I mean by that is uh, they can actually see that uh, there, um, the uh, occurrence of the frequency of tornadoes has happened much more frequently, and uh, the extreme weather like the flood, is supposed to be 100-year flood, now becomes a 20-year flood. And um, if you talk to people in more of a near term, and I think they have a more of appreciation of the changes that perhaps is incremental on their time scale. 
Well, Dr. Pei-Yi Huang, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. I understand you've spent some time in Greenland, and you're coming to Minnesota <laughs> next week. So just dress the same way, and, and you should be fine. And thanks so much for sharing your insight with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Yes, I pr- promise I'll bring my uh, uh, three-layer parkas with me. <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, what do you get when you combine a frozen Minnesota lake and 24 sheets of clean, fast ice? Ah, sheer heaven, at least for hockey nut like me. This weekend, hundreds of hockey players from all over the world will play in the world's largest pond hockey tournament. The U.S. Pond Hockey Championships is on Lake Nokomis in Minneapolis this weekend, and Fred Haberman is the guy who dreamed it all up and made it a reality. Fred, welcome to Jet Streaming. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Well, first things first, how's the ice this year? The ice is fabulous. Uh, it's the thickest ice we've ever had. Um, and as far as uh, the sheets of ice go, uh, we've been flooding uh, since Saturday after we put the boards up, and um, it's going to be a great tournament. What's the best temperature for you guys to be making outdoor ice? Uh, well, you know, we, we love uh, somewhere in the single digits. Um, and, of course, as far as playing, we like, uh, we like playing when the temps are around 23. <laughs> That's pretty specific. We'll, we'll, well try to work on that. Certainly somewhere between <laughs> 20 and 27 would be ideal. Uh, Fred, how about if, uh, well, of course, for this coming weekend, it's not out of the question that during the tournament, at least, we might have wind chill conditions in the minus teens, possibly. Now, uh, does that provoke some uh, changes, or does that put some stress on the players? You know, it's interesting. Last year was just brutal in terms of the the temperatures, and um, I, I, I certainly... Uh, uh, learned a fair amount uh, around what what's what's an appropriate temp and and the like. Um, certainly, the colder it colder it is, uh, the more it's going to sap some of your energy. Uh, what was fascinating for me because I play in the tournament as well was that um, I was warm, and the technology today that exists with um, toe warmers and and hand warmers is just fantastic. So it allowed me to be warm. Nonetheless. Wind uh, is always um, a factor, and I think one of the reasons why we were so fortunate to uh, last year uh, in terms of not having to cancel the tournament, simply put, was because we did not have the wind that um, uh, so often you can get in Minnesota. Last Saturday, we had some pretty intense winds, and it created all kinds of problems for us uh, as it related to um, putting up the boards. We would put the boards up, we'd turn our back, and then the boards would be blown down. Mm. So winds, uh, to your point, certainly play a factor. And, of course, winds play a factor, I would almost say, more so for the spectators than they would the players. Oh, sure, sure. You've got a lot of people that, uh, well, they're not out there necessarily exerting themselves. Exactly. They're, they're just They're just trying to stay warm. The other thing about playing outdoors uh, this time of year, now um, – in the absence of cloud, you've got some awfully low sun angles, and I imagine the orientation of the uh, of the uh, hockey uh, in terms of the directional layout might have a little impact on how well you see. Does that come into play at all? It's, it 
it's interesting. Uh, certainly, um, it, it 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 can. Um, uh, and of course, the I would also say that the the how bright it can get, uh, particularly with the um, uh, uh, the reflections off of the ice. Um, and interestingly, you know, you you start wearing sunglasses for the first say five minutes and then they fog up. So mm. it can be pretty bright. I would almost say that the, 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 the brightness overall can be, can be a bit of a distraction. Fred, a little bit about the tournament. Uh, how did you dream this thing up? Well, I was inspired originally by uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Arendelle, who showed me a picture on um, uh, the World Pond Hockey Championships in Sports Illustrated. And there were a number of folks that were... Um, uh, playing hockey up there, and I thought, you know, we should be doing this here in the Twin Cities. And um, I also love outdoor hockey, so it was a perfect match for me. Um, I love the idea of people coming together from all walks of life, all ages, and really sharing this this common bond, which of course is playing outside in the elements and playing hockey um, with no whistles, no um, parents, so to speak, no no pressures. And just the whole purity of outdoor uh, hockey just was so appealing that I thought, you know what, I've got this rink in my backyard. I'd like to create this, um, so to speak, the backyard writ large uh, on initially Lake Calhoun, uh, and now it's on Lake Nokomis. And, of course, that was a weather uh, issue once again. In year two, we had open water. Uh, This was two years ago on Lake Calhoun. Not good. (laughs) <laughs> not good at all. Not good. Good for the water polo championships, not good for the pond <laughs> yes. hockey championships. And so we, uh, at the same time, interestingly, we had eight inches of ice on Lake Nokomis. Uh, and I think there are a number of factors for that. One is just the, 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 amount, of number of wind, the, 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 the amount of wind you get on Calhoun, as well as um, the protection that you have in this northern bay on Nokomis. So the eight inches of ice versus the open water, uh, it was an easy pick to go to Nokomis. Um, uh, Fred, how many do you expect? Uh, it occurs to me you've got an age range of participants. Then you've got, of course, uh, spectators. Um, do you do you have to be concerned about deployment of, uh, you know, emergency personnel in case people need assistance or things like that uh, with this tournament? Yes. Well, we're always uh, we're always concerned with safety. Safety's first uh, and foremost on our minds. Uh, certainly, um, we're always looking at the ice thickness, and we're also looking at um, uh, the age range, to your point, as it relates to, um, you know, we have 18-year-olds 18 18 year playing all the way to uh, folks in the 50-plus category, and we have TRIA, uh, our medical specialists, who are on site, and um, MDs all the way to uh, nurse practitioners and the like who are there to uh, take care of anyone who might might injure themselves. Fred, uh, how many teams, where do the players come from, and and how far away do some of the players come from? Yes, we have uh, about 1,500 players uh, from 30 different states. We have uh, spectators that are coming from all over the country, as well as uh, a, a player that I just found out is coming from the UK to play. Uh, and of course, we have our neighbors to the north who send people down uh, Canada. And um, you know, it's really become this reunion, so to speak, of people who played hockey, whether 
they played hockey as kids together or they played hockey in college together. We have this this group of uh, uh, folks from Princeton who graduated in 78 who are the spirit of 78, all the way to um, the former CEO of of 3M, who's now the CEO of Boeing, McNerney, who who gets together with his brothers, and they play on a team called the Frozen Assets. Um, <laughs> uh, and then you have um, people like 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 me who who connect with with folks they've been playing with for for years uh, every winter. And so it's it's this this wonderful moment to be kids again, and that's really what we're trying to um, trying to achieve, as well as pass on to our kids that, hey, you know, this is a good time just to go out and play and, and, and have fun and not worry about the pressures of, of did, I, did I make the perfect pass? Am I going to make the team? So, You know, I'm more relaxed already just, uh, just sitting here, Fred. <laughs> As a guy who spent a lot of my youth and wonderful days all day long on the pond skating and playing hockey, I, I look forward to this every year. And uh, may you have fast ice and a tailwind this weekend on Lake Nokomis. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking with you. Well, thunder means websites here on our little jet streaming show. And uh, today we've got an interesting one, courtesy of our friend Craig Edwards and colleague. It's the uh, Weather Office for Canada. And here's the, the website address. It's www.weatheroffice.com dot gc dot ca slash canada and of course we'll link that up for you on the jet streaming site basically it is uh, you can think of it i suppose as the counterpart to our NOAA or national weather service site up in canada and it's uh, a great place to look for conditions uh, and models and forecasts from where we get a lot of our weather in this part of the country i'm looking at Yellowknife right now in the northwest territories where it's two degrees below zero fahrenheit so we track these arctic outbreaks as they come this way through Canada. Pretty good site, Mark, if you ever have a chance. Yes, the other attributes I look at there, Paul, is uh, they keep track, as you know, of the ice conditions on the Great Lakes as well as in the Arctic Sea and uh, Hudson Bay. And so you can get pretty frequent updates on what the ice conditions are like there, too. Yes, good stuff. Thank you. Good contribution. Uh, Again, the Weather Office Canada. Check it out. Uh, new feature this week. Uh, Mark Seeley has a, a bevy of wonderful weather words. And, uh, Mark, I'm about due for a haircut, but I'm not sure I want to get one the way you're talking about. What's your word this you week? You know, this, this, this <laughs> kind of barber you want to stay away from, Paul. Uh, barber is a term that's been used in uh, meteorology for some generations. It originates uh, from weather forecasting on the Great Lakes originally. And it's still used by mariners on the Great Lakes from time to time. More often than not, it refers to a severe storm in the Great Lakes region or along the Gulf of St. Lawrence that produces a lot of frozen spray or ice that sticks on the rigging of ships. In its most severe form, it can refer to a blizzard-like storm in which uh, wind-borne ice particles almost cut the hair and the skin from the face. So that's where the term barber comes from. It's something to be avoided, not something to be attracted to. And when you describe this scene, I think Edmund Fitzgerald. Would the Edmund Fitzgerald storm be considered a barber or those kind of conditions? Boy, it was uh, probably from the standpoint of famous storms, it might be right on the verge. I'm not sure how much of it was liquid versus how much of it was frozen precipitation, but it was certainly a horrific storm. 
Fascinating word. All right, our weather word of the week. Thank you, Mark Seeley. And uh, how about a little listener feedback? Let's uh, hear from Paul, who is in South Yorkshire in the U.K., and uh, he has a question for us uh, today. He says, with all the snow around, I'm forever being asked the age-old question, can it be too cold to snow? However, nobody asks, when is it too hot to snow? So Paul asks us the question, when is it too hot to snow? And he professes that the answer could be above about uh, 4 degrees Celsius or 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit. But uh, could there be something going on with the dew point that would allow snow at that temperature? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, two major conditions need to be in effect to get snow at the surface. First of all, it needs to be cold enough to produce ice crystals in that critical layer between about five and 10,000 feet. And then it needs to be cold enough for those ice crystals as they fall to reach the surface before they melt. I don't know what the absolute value for that is at the surface. The atmosphere generally cools with height, but I'm guessing 39, 40 degrees at the surface is probably a pretty good indicator. What do you think, Mark? I think in general it is, uh, Paul, uh, although the level of the freezing uh, layer in the atmosphere is extremely important. For example, I've noted here in the western Great Lakes region, when the freezing level is really close to the surface, we can actually have surface conditions in the 40s, well into the 40s. I've seen as high as 46 or 47 degrees but still have snowflakes falling because the freezing level is close enough to the surface that they can maintain their structure at least until they touch, uh, touch ground. And, and interesting, too, I wonder how that plays out in the mountains because that condition you describe from my observations is pretty rare around these parts. It does happen, but I wonder if the, in the mountains uh, perhaps they get snow at higher temperatures. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the frequencies were different out in the, uh, in the western mountain areas. All right. Well, great discussion today, Mark, and good show. Thank you very much. A pleasure to talk with you again. Always good to be with you too, Paul. That bundles up another winter edition of Jet Streaming. For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound engineer Randy Johnson, I'm Paul Hutner. Thanks for listening. Remember to keep your ears here to Jet Streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky. <laughs>